We're going to be in Ephesians uh, 1 this week, and at this rate for a very long time. And uh, last week we, we did a quick survey of this long sentence that marks the opening of Paul's letter to the saints at Ephesus from verses 3 through to uh, verse 14. And in many ways today we'll just be continuing that theme of being blessed, but simply mining down a little deeper, and we'll look at just one verse, verse 3. A great preacher, some of you know him, uh, Andrew Lim, told me this week that Ephesians 1 verse 3 is really the thesis statement of the first three chapters of Ephesians. And he's right. This text tells us that if you are a Christian, you are your immeasurably valuable blessings are grounded and safe in Jesus Christ. And that's something we should, we should hear and, and value uh, this time. All right, so let's read it, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So much in there. So much in there. The Apostle Paul is, in a sense, launching into song. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a, there's a wonder, there's an amazement in his writing. It is a story that he never gets tired of telling. The work of God in Jesus Christ. If we understand something of our guilt of sin, our natural alienation from God because of our rebellion against Him, if we understand something of the, the fallenness of this world, then grace, the grace of God, is good news. It is good news which ought to cause our hearts to sing and to rise up. I want to hone in on that phrase, in Christ, blessed in Christ. But to set that up, we need to not skip past what Paul is doing by mentioning Christ twice in verse 3. We see that? Blessed be who? That's, a call to, that's just something of a call to worship. Blessed be who? The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ. See the two mentions of Christ there. Our Lord Jesus Christ. When we hear that phrase, we need to be thinking representative. The Christ, the Messiah, the, the Savior who is Lord, the, the crucified and risen Lord overall, He represents His people. Paul says, our Lord Himself, the church at Ephesus, the he is the, the head of the body. He is the king of Israel. He is our Lord. He is our king as well. And so when we read and hear this, we need to understand our Lord, the Lord, the king, represents his people. As David represented Israel against the Philistine army, which was represented by Goliath, something like that. So when it says, Blessed be God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he's not saying that, that Jesus is important and then there's above that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
that there is a bigger God above this Lord Jesus Christ. It's not what Paul's doing. One commentator says, to say that the Father is the God of Jesus is not to deny the incarnate Son's true divinity, that he is truly God, but to express his true humanity and that through him God is also our God and Father. He's saying our Lord. It's, it's recognizing the humanity of Jesus Christ, that he is truly God or fully God and fully human. And is so fit to be our representative and Lord. And because he is the Son, the divine Son by his Sonship, God is likewise our Father. And in the fatherhood of God, there is perfect care and protection and inheritance, as we've seen uh, in the Sermon on the Mount in uh, Matthew chapter 6 and 7. And so the, the basis of the, the church and the, by virtue of that, the, the individual Christian's blessing, and if you are in Christ, your blessing, is that they are in Christ. He has blessed us in Christ. We see that phrase, in Christ, or, or something like it, in him. It comes in a total of 11 times here at the beginning of Ephesians. It's crucially important. It's not something that we should just skip over. It's very easy to just skip over it. I read the Bible for years before I started to realize that it was important. In Christ. The phrase in Christ or in Christ Jesus is where we get something called the doctrine of union with Christ, right? Theologians look at scripture and they, they're seeking to, to summarize what it is saying. And we, we, we understand this phrase in Christ as being the, the cornerstone of something we call union with Christ. The believers and the church's union with Jesus Christ. It's speaking of relationship. And it's tied up in the idea of Christ being his people's representative. It makes some sense of the, the wonder of salvation. Uh, one famous uh, theologian, he called union with Christ the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. The central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation is union with Christ. And this phrase here in your Bible, in Christ. There are at least three headings which we can understand what it means that we are in Christ. The first one is that there is an electing or a predestinating aspect of election in Christ. And we see that in verse 4. He says, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. God has chosen a people in Christ. That's what's coming in verse 4, which we'll be looking at in a few weeks' time. In Christ before the foundation of the world. That's an aspect of union with Christ. A second aspect of union with Christ is that we participate in the redemptive events of history. There's a redemptive historical 
act, aspect to union with Christ. And this is, this, this is hard to get your head around, but when you, when you get it, it's just mind-blowing. What this is saying is that the believer in Christ has been and can be said to have been saved by their experience of participating in Christ through these great moments of salvation history. These are not just truths and, and doctrines, but they also speak to historical facts. Jesus Christ really lived and died and rose again. Let me give you an example of this. In Romans 5.10, the Apostle Paul says, For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Paul's saying that salvation and reconciliation with God is tied up in the death and resurrection of Christ. And then he makes this abundantly clear in the next chapter in Romans 6. We see how baptism, baptism is partly to be understood. There's so many aspects and pictures that are tied up in baptism. But baptism is partly to be understood as a sign and seal of union with Christ. And it's pointing to these historical saving events and our participation with Christ. Let me give you an example. In Romans 6, verse 3, Paul says this, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And he summarizes this in verse 5 by saying, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Christ has died. Christ has risen. I have died. I have risen. And I will rise when Christ comes again. That's a blessing of being in Christ. And then lastly, thirdly, there is an experiential, you could say, some, some theologians would say, a mystical element of union with Christ. I have personal faith in Christ Jesus, and I have received him as Lord and Savior, and therefore I am said to have been knitted together with him by faith and united in the bond of peace by the Spirit, along with the church. The actions of God in eternity have now brought me into a living relationship, a present relationship, because Christ still lives. He is the one who is has saved me, he is saving me, and he will save me. He is my great high priest who intercedes for me, and he is my Lord. I have a present union with him. It cannot be seen, but it is true. It is sure. What this aspect of union with Christ means is that Christ is more than simply 
the object of faith, he is also the one we have been brought into a living fellowship with. Because he lives, we live. Because he lives, we will have life. And we can then say with Paul, we are blessed beyond measure. Our status and our identity and our blessing is tied up in who Christ is because of this. Paul says at the end of 1 Corinthians 1, just a, a glorious statement, he says this, Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. All those blessings, because you are in Christ Jesus. So Paul makes much of being blessed in Christ, and he says he has blessed us in Christ with spiritual blessings. We should talk about that for a moment. When we hear spiritual blessings, we naturally incline, oh, spiritual is the opposite of physical, and therefore it's not talking about physical blessings in any way, shape, or form, and it's got nothing to do with that. But it's not the case. Uh, we, we could say that uh, spiritual blessings are those pertaining to the Holy Spirit. One commentator says that the word spiritual is an adjective for the Spirit, an adjective for the Holy Spirit. These are blessings that have come by the Holy Spirit. Paul is going to then outline in verses 4 through to 14 this catalog of blessings that come to us. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, applies the blessings of Christ to the people of God. And some of these blessings are, you know, in verse 4, it says, We have been chosen in Him. In verse 5, it says, He predestined us for adoption as sons. Verse 6, He says, He has poured grace on us and blessed us in the Beloved. In verse 7, there's redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins, our trespasses. That God, in verse 10, he says, he has brought us into this plan to unite all things in Christ. Verse 11, we've obtained an inheritance. Verse 12, that we find hope in Christ. Then verse 13, that we were sealed with the Holy Spirit who guarantees our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. These are the spiritual blessings that are being spoken of. But now get this. We just read from Deuteronomy 28. Old Covenant Israel, preparing to go into the land of Canaan, the land of promise, which is promised to their patriarch, Abraham. But now under Moses, they are now getting told, about how they will be blessed in this land. They've been blessed, and they said they're being given the blessing of this land. But also, they're getting told under the Old Covenant, under the Mosaic Covenant, how they will keep this land and how they will keep these blessings. God has blessed you. God promises you long, prosperous life in the land. But you need to listen and you need to obey. 
And the bit that I didn't read, starting in verse 15, there's covenant blessings, but then there's also covenant curse. In verse 15 of Deuteronomy 28, If you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all His commandments and His statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field, and so on, and so on. How did it go for Israel? How did keeping the Mosaic Covenant in the land go for them? Not well. And the covenant curse was therefore exile. That's the end of Deuteronomy 28. They were told before they went in. And so we contrast this. We contrast this with the blessings of the new covenant. And the words, again of the Apostle Paul in Galatians 3.13, which says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. This new covenant which is going out for the people of the people of Israel and the Gentiles that are then uh, brought in. Instead of listen and obey and you will live long in the land, it's listen, hear the word of what he has done, of his obedience. His obedience. The land is inherited and kept by his obedience. That greater promise of a new creation and all the blessings that are spoken of here in Ephesians 1 are tied up in who he is and what he has done in Christ. And so what this means, it's so freeing. It is so freeing. The ground of your blessing is ultimately not about you. It's not about you. The good news is, in two words, Jesus Christ. And the fruit of this is found in two other words, in Christ. And in this we find blessing. Our acceptance, our righteousness, and our blessing is found outside of us in Christ. But just because it's found outside of us doesn't mean it's not ours. And that's why union's so important. It is ours in Christ. And so therefore, ultimately, we can say that God bestows blessing on His people because He is pleased in His Son. At the baptism of Christ, we, we heard these words booming from heaven. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. In Christ, the divine favor rests upon his people because God is pleased in the divine Son. Therefore, it's not about what we bring to the table that guarantees our blessing. It's not your performance. It's not how good your morality has been. 
I encourage you to read the scriptures and pray and 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 and, and reflect upon the grace of God to you and and reflect upon these things and to seek to encourage one another and maybe listen to some some good Christian music to to remind us of truth. But how well you do that is not the ground of your blessing. Your feelings are not the ground of your blessing. Your age, your gender, your ethnicity, your class, your political team, none of those things are the grounds of your blessing. God has worked to bless with spiritual blessings in Christ. And these spiritual blessings, we are told, are in the heavenly places. F.F. Bruce puts it this way, temporarily we continue to live here on earth, spiritually we already live in the heavenly realm where Christ lives. This is the tension, the special tension of Christian existence in the world between the two comings of Christ. Christ has come, Christ will come again. When we see the heavenly places, we are to be clearly reminded that this is where Christ is. It's calling to mind rising above. Paul repeatedly uses heavenly to, to refer to overall, over all the powers of evil, over all the powers of darkness, over all sin. It calls to mind triumph, completion. It calls to mind a, a, a new creation, a heavenly creation, the will of God prospering. When, when Jesus Calls, tells, teaches his disciples to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's saying that this reality come down. It says this perfect reality, this perfect blessing, this untouchable blessing, the grace and peace of God poured out from heaven where Christ is. Jesus on the cross has these words, it is finished. In some of his last words are, it is finished. It is done. It is completed. He is there. We are now simply living out the last act of this play. It is finished. And so the blessings are there in the heavenly places where Christ is. And so when Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And Jesus knew at that time, as he spoke the words of the Sermon on the Mount, that one day he would die, he would rise, and he would ascend. And therefore, the ultimate treasure, the ultimate ground of our, all our blessing is there in heaven. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And what that means is it cannot be taken from us. It cannot be destroyed. Moth and rust will not affect it. The late great counselor David Powlison says, If what you most value can be taken away or destroyed, then you set yourself up for anxiety. 
We have many reasons to be anxious. I say that. We have many reasons sometimes to, to worry. But what Paul is saying is that in Christ, our greatest blessing cannot be taken from us. Something bigger than all those reasons, balancing it out easily. The spiritual blessings in the heavenly places where Christ is, it cannot be taken from you. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Those blessings are immeasurably valuable and they cannot be taken for you. And they're immeasurably valuable because they come at the cost of the humbling of the incarnate Son of God even to death on a cross. And so Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father. Praise these truths, this Theology exists for doxology. It's, it's worship. Bless God. God is to be praised for His creation. All creatures owe God praise because of who He is. All creatures are to bless God and, and, and grant Him what He is owed. But how much more than creation as we look out at, at, at mountains and fields and rivers and rainbows... Salvation. Our guilt was great. His grace is greater. And so we have gratitude. So bless God. We, we're called to bless God. We'll praise Him in the storm. Praise Him through the fires. Praise Him when there is plenty. Praise, praise Him when there is little. Praise Him in all times. Bless God. Blessed be the name of the Lord who gives and takes away. And in Christ, he has given blessing and won't take it away. And that's good news. Let's pray. Gracious God, we have a, a relationship with you because you are the creator and the sustainer of the world. And we know that you care for us as you care for your creation. But more than this, Lord, help us to rejoice in our identity as children of God. Help us to pray. Help us to praise. Help us to be filled with encouragement and wonder. And so, Lord, as, as, as we listen to this, Help us to repent of our sins and realize that you are so much more willing to receive us than we are even to go to you. Help us to repent of our sins and believe the gospel. And again, be enraptured by the wonders of your blessing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.